Genesis chapter 50 and we prepare to look at God's word together. But before we get that, I, I get there, I want to share with you something um, that was sent to me months ago now. It was sent in the form of an email, and this is um, part of it, and I just want to share it with you. And this person wrote to me, uh, and this is a shout-out to some degree to um, uh, David Crowley and the Crowley family, and especially their son Nathaniel. I remember when David Crowley's son Nathaniel was a young boy. From the time he was four or five until he was about nine, he never ran through the halls of Community Chapel. Nor did he walk. He used to skip from one place to the next. I was watching him one day and remembering thinking it was because he was so happy to be in the house of the Lord. And then this person writes this. When I returned to gathering in my church as a family, my inclination will be to skip through the halls. Common sense tells me that even though we have paramedics in the congregation, I dare not risk it. Nothing good can come from that. But know this in my heart. I will be skipping. And so today, Gary Batillier is here in church for the first time in all of that, right? And uh, he's had his, his health battle and his struggles. But um, So we don't want you to skip inside the building. We don't, we don't want you to get hurt. And, um, but if you want to skip outside, but we know you're skipping in your heart today. And he sent that to me months ago. And then I was, I was walking down our street one morning, taking a morning walk, and all of a sudden this, you know when you ever have a car pull up alongside you and just stop? It's kind of a little unsettling, and that's exactly what happened. This car pulled up alongside me and stopped, and I wasn't quite sure who it was right away. And it was Gary, and he was on his way to the church, and he hands me this coming through his wind car window, and it says on it, Community Chapel divided by COVID, united by love, love wins. Right? Well, you know, Gary's been like one of those encouragers all along the way. And I just want to say thank you to you. I get these little emails from him, and he talks about God working in his life. And whether it's cancer or COVID, how God, you know, there's not that six foot of distance he wrote to me saying between me and God. And I'm grateful for that. So, Gary, thank you, brother. Let's figure out who we can do that for this week, right? Who is it that you want to be that blessing to this week? All right, let's get into this this morning. It's kind of story time, in a way. I make a distinction between movies and films. What about you? See, for me, there are hundreds of movies, and movies are simply content that are, that's put on plastic, film, or digitized today, that mostly does not add any value to life. Mostly it's just mass-produced to make a buck and maybe have some cheap entertainment. In other words, there are a lot of bad movies. There's probably more bad movies than good movies, in my mind, just, just in the quality of them. But then there are films. There are very few and select films that reach into my soul and they strike a chord. And the question is, what is the difference? Well, it is what is referred to as the greatest plot in storytelling. And that is the redemptive plot. The greatest movies of all time, the greatest stories of all time, carry with them a theme of redemption. Well, when we think about redemption, we think about God. And when we think about 
the redemptive nature and activity of God, we immediately and rightfully are captivated by the image of Jesus Christ, especially on the cross. But we can't just leave it there. Because this redemptive side of God, this redemptive picture of God, is not a New Testament add-on that just burst on the scene with the advent of Jesus. And all of a sudden, wow, look, this is this redemptive God. God has always, is, and will always be a God of redemption. It is the scarlet thread that runs through the entire Bible. The redemptive plot. But what happens when a redemptive God meets a broken world? Over the next three weeks, we're going to ask that question, and we're going to look at three Old Testament passages that help us see God redeeming people who really do not deserve it, sort of like you and me. Some stories that will help us maybe see God working this redemptive plot in our world. We're going to look at when a redemptive God meets a broken world. So why don't we start with a man by the name of Joseph. You may remember Joseph. Talk about a family drama. If you want to read about an amazing family drama in, um, in the Bible, go to Genesis 37 through 50. Now, we're not going to look at all of that today, but let's just start maybe capturing some of it. Everyone knows that a parent is not supposed to have a favorite, Right? Everybody knows that. But Jacob did anyway. And everyone knew Joseph was his favorite just by the expensive coat he gave him, which he did not give to his brothers. If you read that whole dramatic story, it's pretty amazing. But let's press fast forward, and and maybe you can recall a couple of these moments. Joseph um, tells his brothers and parents about a dream he had and how he was eventually going to be superior to them. As you may know, that did not go over so well in the family. His jealous brothers eventually, in what was really a classic crime of opportunity, sell him into slavery, and they fabricate a story of his death, causing his father Jacob to be crushed by grief. Joseph endures slavery, prison, and then with his dream-translating ability, he moves into the palace as Pharaoh's right-hand man. And with God-given wisdom, I mean, this is a good word for us to read in these days, with God-given wisdom, he leads through a crisis of pandemic proportions, a seven-year famine, not just in Egypt, in the entire region. Well, his brothers then go to Egypt to try to find help in this pandemic-style crisis, not realizing it is the brother they abused who aids them. But eventually, all of that is revealed. And where we pick things up, it is now 17 years later, and Jacob has died. And the truth is, these brothers are now fearful that their brother will get his due. Now, it's important to remember what Christopher Davis says when he said, it all began at the hands of his brothers who hurt him, 
but now finds them, find themselves in the awkward position of needing him. So let's pick up the intrigue at verse 15 of chapter 50. This is the word of the Lord for us today. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. Ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Thanks be to God for his word today. Now upon hearing this, I'd like you to imagine you're a specific person in this story. It's an unnamed person, actually. I'd like you to imagine that you are a member of Pharaoh's court in Egypt. You're a member of Pharaoh's court. That's where Joseph works. He works in Pharaoh's court. And you are very acquainted with, with Joseph's story now. You've watched what's happened with his family. And you're watching what's going on. You hear what Joseph is doing, how he has repaid his brothers in this fashion. And I imagine if you're a member of Pharaoh's court, you're going to ask this question. He did what? He did what? You see... You've got to remember, the Egyptians were the most powerful people of that time. And they represent a view of the world that does not include a redemptive God. And in ancient times, family members would even wait until the patriarch dies to exact retribution. They would wait patiently until the patriarch dies, and then they'd say, okay, now's our chance. That was the way of power. So rightfully, the brothers are fearful, but the wild card in this story is the brother Joseph. He had the power to not only take their possessions and their freedom, but just with a word, he could have had them executed. And no one would have questioned it. Everyone around him would have said, you know what, they got what they deserved. But that's not what he did. You intended to harm me, he said, but God intended it for good. Those now famous words of Joseph to his brothers, though, have been misused and they've been abused to validate a worldview that makes God dismissive of tragedy and sorrow. They've been misused to try to explain away the impact of pain and suffering and injustice of others. Now, those suffering can make statements like this, and we need to listen. But we need to be careful not to impose our interpretation upon another's experience of suffering. An example of that, even in our time right now, is something I read last week reminded me of this. How this relates to this conversation on racial reconciliation in our country. 
It is not my place as a white person to define what is offensive to a black person. So it's not my place to try to force or impose my interpretation. But when the suffering person says it, well, we need to stop and listen. But as I said, these words have often been reduced down to a religious platitude in many ways. But there's so much more. Hear them again. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? What a statement that is. What a recognition that is. You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, something happens here. Something very specific happens here. What happens is Joseph makes a choice about how he sees the world. The suffering he's endured, the hardship he had inflicted on him, the, the, the unforgivable sin of his brothers against him, none of those things are minimized here. In fact, in Genesis 45, Joseph makes sure they remember. In verse 4, he said this to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. When he first revealed himself to him, he said, listen, I'm the one. Do you remember that? Do you remember what you did to me? Joseph does not minimize or dismiss the worst that has happened to him. Not once. But he also does not choose to allow that to define him. He chooses to not look at the world through the filter of vengeance or power or entitlement, all of which the majority would have nodded in approval for him to do so, then and probably now. He chose to look at the world, especially his brothers, through the lens of redemption, but more specifically, through the lens of the God who is redemptive. Am I God, he says? No, but he looked through the lens of the God of redemption. You see, Joseph, many have said, is a foreshadowing of Christ. A reflection of the character of God. In his response, we discover the intention of God for a broken world. Redemption. We can't lose sight of that, my friends. That is the intention of God for the world. Redemption. Redemption. Nothing more. That's God's heart. The redemption of all creation. From the beginning of Scripture to the end. And it is the ultimate hope for us as followers of Jesus. It's echoed in the book of Acts, chapter 3, verse 21, in the famous sermon Heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. We wait for God to restore everything. We want God to restore everything. It is this hope of ultimate redemption that causes us to move forward in a world that is broken. It causes us to seek to be people of love and truth and mercy and justice. In other words, it causes me to ask, can I be like Joseph? As I stare at the woes of the world, the cries of the world around us, the tensions of the world around us, the struggles we all face, 
This story makes me ask three questions. And the first question is this. Can we look at our world through God's intention? Now, I've asked this question before in different ways, and I I think it's essential to ask it again, and it is this. Through which lens are you looking at the world? Now, think about how you view your world. Think about how you're viewing the times that we're living in. Through which lens do you predominantly look through the world? You see, if you are looking through a political lens right now, you will grow, you will grow as a person more polarized from others. If you're looking through the lens of social media, if that's the primary lens you're looking through, you will grow, perhaps, in your growth in lack of boundaries in being unkind and incivil to others. If you are looking through the lens of the news media, if that's what forms and shapes how you view the world more than anything else, you will grow in a critical spirit and cynicism and divisiveness. In his recent article in our district newsletter, I invite you to go to our New England District Church of Nazarene um, Facebook page and website, and you'll find this, this article. Reverend Ken Stanford wrote these words. If you disagree with a person or politician or policy or even an opinion, you are called out as not being a Christian. The name calling and labeling is so destructive, and I believe it breaks the very heart of God. And I'm talking about believers, he writes. You see, if those lenses or some other lens that you have that isn't God's lens, if this is how you're looking at the world, I promise you will become more like the imagined Egyptians in Pharaoh's court than Joseph. I will become more like those in Pharaoh's court than I will like Joseph. I will become more like the world than like Christ. But the heart of Joseph's response here comes from looking at the world through the lens of a redemptive God who's working and meeting his broken world and then joining God in being part of that redemption. So can we look at our world through God's intention? But then, this view of the world is actually very dependent on an accurate view of ourselves. And so the second question is, is can we look at our own sin and failure through the eyes of God's intention? Um, Do you and I see God's true intention for our lives? God aims, this is such good news for us, right? God aims to redeem us from our own sinfulness and waywardness. In fact, It's not an exaggeration to say that God's aim is to save us from ourselves. The old hymn, Come Thou Fount, says it so perfectly well. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. I'm a debtor to grace. We, we heard it in our psalm. As far as the east is from the west, so the Lord throws our transgressions away from us. How far is the east from the west? It's immeasurable. 
That's how big God's grace is for us. Isn't that good news? We need to remember that, my friends. In Genesis 45, as I said, Joseph reminds his brothers of their grievous sin against him. But then get this. For 17 years, he refuses to hold that over their heads. He never once hammers them. And you know what you discover? That, in spite of the fact that never once do they ask for forgiveness. Now, at the end, when we hear them saying, please forgive your servants, they are taking the words of Jacob, not their words. But it is clear that his brothers, though their brother refused to hold this over them, his brothers continue to live under the bondage of their sin. But Joseph releases them, releases them from it. And I think that is a good definition of forgiveness of our sin. Releasing, being released from our sin. Jesus Christ came to be a liberator. Releasing us from our sin. But also releasing others from their sin against us. Now I'm not suggesting that's easy. That's just not some platitude to speak and spout. And it's definitely not earned. It wasn't earned by his brothers. And it's hard. And it takes grace. But could you imagine the relief for his brothers? And I imagine that for the rest of their lives, they thought two things. They thought, what would have happened if Joseph didn't do that? And secondly, they thought, Joseph did that. And that saved us and changed us. And if they had the language of the hymn, they would say, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, we are constrained to be. Now, perhaps you see where I'm going. What if we stopped and remembered how gracious God has been to each of us? And in doing so, we recognize the level of grace that has been given to us, and we determined to offer grace to others at the level of grace that was offered to us in the same measure, right? Uh, Ignatius was a Christian in the 16th century. He's the founder of what we know as the Jesuits today. And he said this, suppose that every good Christian is more ready to put a good interpretation on another statement than to condemn it. In our current time and in our current vernacular, Jim Manny retranslates that, and he says this, how good would it be if spouses, politicians, business associates, and fellow Christians did what Ignatius advised, and we were more ready to put a good interpretation on another statement than to condemn it? In other words, if we would first say we would think of the best, we would give the benefit of the doubt. That's what Joseph did. In the selling into slavery, in the struggles through prison, in the elevation to the palace, and even in his ability to now help his brothers, he offers to them the same measure of grace that was given to him. The same measure of grace. Can I ask you today? Do you think that we need that today? Amen? Do we need that today to one another? 
to brothers and sisters in Christ, to our family members, to our leaders, to one another, to the conversations that are in our culture. But then there's a third question that this story causes me to ask. This view, looking through the lens of God's intention, his redemption. Can we imagine what God wants to do with the worst of our circumstances? Can we imagine that? As I said, these circumstances of suffering and rejection and misery and pain that Joseph experienced are not minimized or dismissed. Nor in the Bible do we find some justification to minimize pain and suffering. Not at all. And that doesn't happen here. But they are redeemed. They're redeemed in his life. And I asked myself, how is that? Why is that? And that's because, again, Joseph made this choice to see God as the redeemer of everything. And I think the lesson I learned from Joseph and just about every significant character in Scripture is this. Because this this thread of redemption runs throughout the entire Bible. From the beginning to the end, we, we see this story right here in Genesis 50 with Joseph and this whole redemption theme. And we go all the way through the Scripture and we come to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation and we hear God saying, behold, all things are new. And it's that restoration and that redemption we're hoping for. This is the story. Joseph sees God as redeemer of everything. And I think the lesson we learn through all of Scripture is this. God redeems what we give him. God cannot redeem in your life or my life what I will not give to him. If I hold on to it, if I, if I hold on to my anger, if I hold on to my rage, if I hold on to my jealousy, if I, if I hold on to my perspective, without seeking to be open to hearing and listening, praying for others, if I, you know, all that stuff. God can't redeem that. If I hold on to my sin in my life and I beat myself up over that forever and ever and ever, it's, it's hard for God to redeem it because God is a gentleman and he's not going to force his way in. Praise be to God. But God redeems what we give to him. But now, now hear me. No magic No magic formula here. No silver bullet. No magic words or platitudes from the Bible that makes things all okay. None of that. The truth is, in this story, the injustice suffered at the hands of the brothers was horrific. And it was unthinkable. And it was unforgivable without God. But as I said... Joseph did not let that define him. He instead chose a higher road. He chose a different view. He chose to view the broken world that he was part of through the lens of a redemptive God. That is who God is. And that is who God has always been. We see it all through Scripture, right? 
We listen for it in Jeremiah's hopefulness as he writes a letter to a people who've been ripped from their homes and lost everything. In Jeremiah 29, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We consider that redemptive thread as we hear those famous words, often misused as well, from Paul in Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Not all things are good, but in all things, God works for good. And we're grateful for it when we look at our own lives and we we look at our own brokenness. We look at how we are so far from what God wants us to be. And we look at our world, and it's not what it's supposed to be. The world is not what it's supposed to be. But we hear hope in the words from a prison that Paul pens from the same book that Pastor Serena preached on last week. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. You know these words, perhaps. Being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's that redemption. And yes, yes, we hear it in the words of Joseph. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. It's the redemptive God meeting a broken world. So is that how you're viewing the world and your life in these days? Is that how we're viewing the anguished cries of the world that is broken all around us? The people around you who disagree with you? Those who live with you? The suffering and the heartache that's been visited upon you? Not of your choice or your action? Is that how you're viewing the sin in your own life? Where you know you've chosen a path away from God, and yet here's this God who just keeps coming, just keeps coming to bring redemption, forgiveness, the release from our sin. Where do you need this redemptive God to meet you today? Where do you need to view the world through the lens of the redemptive God? And then where will you be willing to be a part of his intention for your life and for the world? Redemption. Why don't we give it a try? Amen? Let's give it a try and imagine what God intends. Well, in a moment, I'm going to just pray a benediction, and our worship team is going to play the song, Spirit of the Living God. There's one line in that song. It says, he changes what I see and what I seek. He changes what I see and what I seek. May God change what I see, how I see, and then that will change what I seek for my life, for my neighbor's life, for my world.
Let us look through the lens of the God of redemption who's meeting right now our broken world. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you, Lord God, that you are the redemptive God who redeems us, Lord, as the scriptures say, from all our transgressions. Lord, we pray now that as we go from this place, that we would be agents of your redemption in the world because of the redemption we've received. But then, God, we also come to you and we pray that you will open up our hearts and that we would open up our hearts to the grace of your forgiveness and your mercy in our own lives. And then might we go live for others and with others in the same measure of grace we've been given. Thank you, Lord God, for your intention, redemption, making all things right, beginning with us and through us. And now, Lord God, may we go in the power of your Spirit, and may you change what we see so that it would change what we seek, all to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.